Okay, you're very welcome to our Top 5 Books podcast. Our next guest is someone who is well-known, particularly in the field of scientists. He's a neuroscientist, author of books like Why Torture Doesn't Work, The Neuroscience of Interrogation, and A Brain for Business, A Brain for Life. He is Professor Shane O'Mara from Trinity College. Shane, you're very welcome. Thanks, Shane. Uh, Great to have you uh, with us. Now, look, before you get to the choices, and they are fascinating choices, I have to say, I'm guessing you don't get to be professor in Trinity college without having a love of books it started from an early age it did very definitely I've always been a a voracious reader and I was sort of very lucky I think through the course of my early life that uh, there were always books around and my parents indulged me where books were concerned and I, I remember you know finding myself occasionally without reading material at the breakfast table and I'd be reading the cornflakes packet and uh, things like that. Before mobile phones, that's what we used <laughs> exactly, to Exactly, that's what days. we used to do. And a punishment for me whenever I transgressed was that I was not allowed to read a book for a day. Wow. So, so that was were, that was bookish? I was I read a lot of books. I wasn't academic in the sense that I studied very hard, but I always had books around and I, I think that's what's always saved me through my whole life. Okay, <laughs> and uh, like does somebody who goes on to be um, a professor in Trinity College did I read Ian Blyton? Did I read The Dandy? Oh, did I read Warlord? Or gosh, it, I read everything Right. Uh, so I read Enid Blyton absolutely loved the famous five and the five find outers and all the, all the rest I of it I find that strangely uh, reassuring and comforting and, uh, I have to say us uh, mere mortals <laughs> uh, and uh, I read manga comics today right, <laughs> without okay. any embarrassment okay, I great. loved uh, Warlord I loved Judge Dredd uh, I loved 2000 AD I particularly loved action until it was banned or discontinued for excessive violence people were worrying about oh, uh, right. things like that back in those days and uh, of course I, I read books uh, by the truckload every book that I could get okay. my hands on Okay well look I'm guessing picking five and it's always a difficult task but I'm guessing it was it was very difficult but you, some absolutely fascinating choices Let's start with your first choice The author is someone who certainly will be known I think to people of, a, of my vintage and older maybe not by younger listeners I'm talking about Carl Sagan and the book is Broca's Brain Tell us about Carl first of all for people who, yeah, so who don't know him He was an astronomer uh, sadly died uh, about 20 years ago of cancer the very young age of 62 and uh, he was an enormously influential scientist uh, he, he uh, gave us the concept of the nuclear winter he did the calculations that showed that if there had been a, a nuclear war that essentially it would be like a massive asteroid strike hitting the Earth, that uh, the Earth would cool and all surface life would be extinguished for a, a very, very long period of time. But he was also a great popularizer of science. He, he did a wonderful science series, or a series on the cosmos called Cosmos, which I absolutely adored. I just thought it, it, the photography and everything it was in it was fabulous. And one of the things that he did in that series was to talk about exploration of other worlds. And uh, there was a line in, in that series that has always lived with me to do with the Mars Explorer, the plan to send a, a robot to another planet. And uh, he said, it's not very intelligent. It's about as smart as a fly. And I was in my early teens, I guess, at the time. And I thought this was an astonishing thing that you could actually build an object that would be as complicated as a fly because I couldn't kill them. Yeah. <laughs> they can get away from you and yeah, yeah. Uh, they're everywhere. Uh, so I, I just thought this was, was absolutely remarkable. And my parents uh, had gone to the States for a, a holiday. And my dad brought me back a whole load of books and newspapers, which I always loved reading as well. And Brock's Brain was one of them. And I, I, I think that book change the way I thought about things. Okay, Broca in this case is, now nobody will remember, <laughs> well, nobody has lived in it, we're talking about a 19th century Century-ish. physician. Yeah. Um, so uh, a really remarkable guy, Paul Broca, he uh, 
was a, a neurologist during the uh, the late Napoleonic Wars in the 1870s, Napoleon III. And what he did was collect cases of people who'd been shot in the head and survived. A uh, really interesting and remarkable thing to do. And what he showed was that, uh, and he had one patient whose name was Tan. Uh, and this patient, the only word he could utter was the word tan. So what, what Broca did was... Because of his injuries? Because of his injuries. So yeah. what, what he did was he looked at all the cases of, of patients who'd been shot in the head, survived and who lost the power to speak. And what he showed in all cases was that in right-handed individuals, he collected about 11 cases, an area just above the temple, the third cerebral convolution, as it's sometimes called. Uh, I often call uh, it that I, myself. I often call it that yeah. yourself. <laughs> that um, soldiers who'd been shot here and uh, subsequently lived, had lost the ability to speak. Now, they did not lose the ability to understand language. So his intelligence was unaffected? All of those things were normal. So the activities of daily life continued. So what Broca inferred correctly was that uh, the motor programs for speech had to be in this particular in that, at area. That point, yeah. And this then made sense of a whole lot of cases that subsequently came along of, of stroke victims who'd lost the ability to articulate. So his set of findings was really one of the very first to lock down the idea that we could take a function, one that we're all, like we're doing it at the moment, we're speaking to each other, and attribute it to a particular brain region. And this was really, really remarkably powerful. And what it also did was say to us that actually the brain area that's concerned with speech the articulation is not the same brain area that's concerned with understanding language. Uh, so they had to be in two different areas. So the hunt went on then to find cases of people who could speak but couldn't understand language. And uh, Carl Wernicke, another name that you won't have heard of outside of, of uh, a neuroanatomy room, discovered another area in the brain connected to Broca's area where people who uh, had injury to this area would speak in a word salad, gibberish, they're perfectly capable of articulation, but they just spoke in nonsense sentences. So this is really part of the theme of, of this book. And what Sagan does is profile Broca and he actually holds Broca's brain <laughs> in his hand because the uh, anatomical collection that Broca started, he became a part of oh, himself. Really? Yeah. The, the ultimate, uh, <laughs> the ultimate yeah, the, <laughs> dignity in a way. Yeah, but yeah. He also says something which I, I, I think is remarkable about Broca. And uh, this theme comes through all the time. So I'll just read the sentence. So he, he talks about Broca still being there in a formal and filled bottle. And he says, might it be possible? Now, this is a book from 1979. Might it be possible at some future time when neurophysiology has advanced substantially to reconstruct the memories or insights of someone long dead? And would that be a good thing? It would be the ultimate breach of privacy, but it would also be a kind of practical immortality. Mm. And you see this kind of stuff coming up again and again with this idea that we can download our brains and get some form of immortality. The answer for Sagan is no, we can't do it. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. I don't want anyone to download my brain. It would just be too scary. But sorry, you say it's Sagan. Right? I think I said Sagan earlier on. Is, I, I might be wrong. It might no, be no, my Galway no, pronunciation. No, uh, I, <laughs> on this one, I'm, I'm going with you. Sorry, is it a... It's not a biography of Broca, though. No, is it? it's a very lyrical description of a trip to the museum in Paris, the Musée de l'Homme, where Broca's brain is contained and uh, reflections around the issue of personal identity, what happens to us after we die, and that kind of thing. Now, it's just one essay. So what's remarkable about this book to me, or was when I was a teenager, it was the first time I'd read a book that said, if somebody asks you to believe something, you have to ask them what the evidence is. And it's a full-throated 
defense of the idea that we need to be empirical, we need to engage our reason, we need to use logic. And that's what this book is about. So there are themes in the book that are, you know, today are completely arcane. Uh, there was a, a, a fervent debate in astrophysics in the early 70s about whether the planets of the solar system had hit each other. And what Sagan did in this book, which again astounded me at the time, was showed by means of a few very, very simple elementary calculations that what people were asserting was wrong. Mm. Uh, and that just blew my mind. That uh, actually, if you think about it, you do some calculations, you think about evidence, you can say, actually, what you're saying, it doesn't matter how fervently you believe it. It's just wrong. wrong. Fascinating, though, because, I mean, and I know the point you're